Well, good morning once again, everyone. Uh, if you're new here, uh, my name's Paul, and I have the privilege of being a, a minister here. And I uh, want to invite you, we're going to be heading into our time of teaching. If you want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, if you have a pew Bible like I have here, it is uh, page number 928, if you wanted to head there. Uh, so grab a bulletin if you haven't already. The one thing I just wanted to mention right now, um, I have a lot of temptation out there, and uh, if I hear candy wrappers being unwrapped during the sermon, um, I will absolutely judge you. So, um, But we are continuing today a series of uh, lessons. It's called Weird Tales of the Bible. And just to kind of catch up as to what we're doing here and why we're doing this is that we believe that this book is the inspired word of God. We believe that everything in here is designed to point us to our God, to teach us uh, who he is, how he thinks, uh, what it means for us to follow him. But let's be honest, this thing is also full of weird stuff all over the place. Sometimes it's really hard to read a story and see how it's supposed to tell us about God. And uh, I've called today's lesson, The Demon's Gonna Knock You Out. So that is our story in Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 11. And I want to set the, the scene for what the story is today because it's important to know. Uh, if you're familiar with the Apostle Paul, uh, Paul is a, mission, a missionary for the church. And the book of Acts, a big part of it, it describes his missionary journeys. Uh, Paul had been a Pharisee. He had been one of the people uh, responsible for persecuting the early Christians. Some scholars have even uh, thought that he was on the council that condemned Jesus to die. Uh, so, in, in one of his Paul was not a fan of the church. His name is Saul at the time. In one of his journeys, Jesus miraculously appears to him and says, "Stop persecuting me." I am, the, I, am Lord, I am your God, and you are persecuting me. And Paul is converted, and he becomes a disciple of Jesus. And so he was an established religious leader, and he begins to follow Jesus. And Paul then spreads out, preaching the gospel all over the Mediterranean world. And the, if you read his writings in the New Testament, uh, or even just in the book of Acts, his st story is crazy. His journey is filled with imprisonments, uh, beatings, a shipwreck, a snake bite. I mean, and there's, it talks about this thorn in his flesh. We don't quite know what it was, but he had some sort of physical ailment as well. Paul goes through hell on earth to proclaim the kingdom of God. And that is what Paul is focused on doing uh, when we enter Acts chapter 19. And I want to describe the environment, the culture that was going on in these days, because it's uh, it kind of makes this, it helps the story make a little bit more sense. So back in these days, if you were a Jewish person, or especially if you wanted to be a religious leader, if you wanted to be known as a religious scholar or an expert in the law, or even get up to being a priest or Pharisee, uh, you, you would attain a certain status based on who your teacher was. Uh, we don't spend a whole lot of time focusing on the aspects of Jesus as a rabbi, as a Jewish rabbi, but that's what people did these days. The rabbis would go from town to town teaching people, and they had followers. So Jesus as a rabbi and the 12 disciples, uh, they, that was actually a, a fairly common. They'd have their little merry little band of uh, misfits, and uh, there actually was this phrase calling, called the dust of your rabbi. 
that uh, it was a very dusty, gross world, and you would travel from town to town, and basically your rabbi would go first. All these other guys would follow behind. The rabbi would kick up dust, and actually all the dirt you could get from your rabbi that got to st- stick on you, that was a badge of honor. It's called being covered in the dust of your rabbi. And uh, this, it, what this led to, it's kind of like if you have different colleges today. You know, a law degree from the Harvard School of Law and the Cooley School of Law up in Lansing, they carry different weight, don't they? But they're both law degrees. You both get to practice law with them. But the school of thought you had, your rabbi, would give you more influence or more sway in the, in the world these days, especially in the Jewish world. And this would lead to the teachers themselves becoming famous. I mean, stories would circulate about them. In the book of Acts, we have Peter, James, John, Barnabas. We have Apollos. I mean, and that's just to name a few. But what made these men different, what makes Christianity different in that time, is that they are all pointing not towards themselves. They're pointing to the one true, te- true teacher, which was Jesus. And so everything that they taught was meant to draw attention away from themselves and towards Christ. But this didn't stop people, especially people who had grown up in Jewish culture, for them to do the same thing. Uh, they would fall into these habits. In 1 Corinthians 1, uh, Paul is actually admonishing the church, or you know, not admonishing, he's rebuking the church, saying, uh, there's divisions among you about who converted you. Some say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which means Peter. Uh, or another one says, I follow Christ. And Paul immediately puts a stop to this, saying, look, you morons. All right, you aren't baptized into the name of Paul. Paul was not crucified for you. Uh, Christ is not divided. Knock it off, step in line, and preach the gospel. Because everything that we are to do as a church is to point to this truth. Jesus is king, and we are not. Because we live in an age of celebrity pastors. Pastors who brag on Instagram about their net worth or their clothes or their cars. There's even an Instagram thing about uh, preacher shoes, uh, which will show that preachers wear $5,000 sneakers on stage. Uh, they post selfies with Justin Bieber. Uh, Bieber. Bieber. All right. There it is. Bieber. All right. Justice Bieber. Anyways. All right. Uh, they wear jewelry so flashy that they would make Mr. T blush. All right. There's even been a reality show about a celebrity pastor and his wife. And you get a church of a few thousand together, inevitably the pastor's going to write a book which will gain them more notoriety, which will lead to a larger following, and on and on the cycle goes, with people starting to follow a pastor instead of following Jesus. And I want to make this clear right now, I don't think I'm at risk of becoming famous anytime soon, but for the love, do not become a disciple of me. Do not follow me, because if you follow me long enough, I will disappoint you. I will fail you. But the greatest thing I could ever do for you or for anyone who might know me is to point you to the one who will never leave you, who will never fail you or forsake you. But this is the environment of teacher worship that Paul came into when he entered Ephesus. Uh, The local church believed, they said, we think we're doing the right things, but there's no power. Uh, They had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Paul comes onto the scene, he asks them about their baptism, and they said, we received John's baptism. And Paul rightly teaches that the point of John the Baptist's baptism was about repentance. It was about getting ready for the one who was going to come after him, to believe in Jesus. 
And after that church was baptized into Jesus' name, the Holy Spirit came, and the power came, and the gospel started to spread. Wonderful things started happening. Paul would enter the synagogues and preach, and once the Jewish people got sick of him, he would go into the lecture halls, which where those people, meaning the Gentiles, would congregate. And this went on for two years to the point of Paul's life mission, which was spreading the gospel. It started to spread all over the surrounding area, and wonderful things was happening. And this was, uh, Paul gained, because of this, he gained quite the reputation. And this is where we come to our weird story today in verse 11. It said, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases, diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, for reasons that are going to become clear just a bit, a couple weeks ago I introduced the Action Bible, which is kind of like a comic book version of the Bible, and this story did not make it into the Action Bible, so I enlisted the talent of some local artists who I trust, uh, named Connor and Ethan Funk. Uh, they're going to uh, help us. If you're a visual learner, fret not. We're going to get some visual aids here. So again, so here's the story. We have handkerchiefs and aprons here. Uh, let's see. There we go. Okay. So we have the Kleenex here, and then it says here, it can't read, it says, in the name of God, let the Kleenex be rubbed. And in case you couldn't tell it, you know, there's the, there's the Kleenex right there. All right. And then you run off, because you have there, and you go to, here you go, because you have someone who's sick. You know they're sick because they have the X's over their eyes. And you give them the Kleenex, and they would get healed. And even children were able to get healed as well. That kind of a growth, but still, the kids would have X's over their eyes. That happened. And then uh, we, then we still get to the next one. How to say this? Not working. All right. Uh, then one more. We can't forget about the demon possessions. The demon possessions happened too, and the demons are the ones who put the X's on the eyes. You could tell right here because the colors are the same. So this was all happening. Now imagine if this was happening. If you could actually rub a handkerchief or a Kleenex on somebody and then take that home and then heal your grandma, I mean, would you be able to go anywhere without being hassled, without fame spreading about you? And wouldn't it be tempting if you were a religious leader to try to get a piece of that fame? And in verse 13, some guys we have, they try to do exactly that. Oh, yeah, oh, back, there we go. Okay, they try to do exactly that. I, I like the NIV, so I'm actually reading from there. It says, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits. And the ESV, they have the itinerant Jewish exorcists, which I think is a great name for a punk rock band. But uh, King James, as usual, actually has it best where it says, then a certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists. <laughs> so uh, I, I bring these different translations to point this out that this was a thing. Certain Jewish people would actually travel from town to town driving out evil spirits. I mean, this was how they made a living. I don't know how, what high school guidance counselor they had that thought that this was going to be a job. This is what they did for a living. They went around driving out spirits. And so we have our, our punk rock band, the itinerant Jewish exorcists. Uh, they heard what was happening in the name of Jesus, and in verse 13 it says that they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Here's what they'd say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you, come out. All right, here's the next one. There we go. Come out. There we go. Okay. I command you, come out. And then seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit asked, answered them, Jesus I know, 
and Paul I know about, but who are you? Who are you? Okay. Kind of look like rabbit ears, I know. Anyways, but then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house, naked and bleeding. (laughs) And if you find it funny, you're not just supposed to find it funny because of the artwork. That is a ridiculous story. I don't know what sort of beating causes you to lose your clothes in the fight. But this is what happens. And this shows, just goes to show you, you know, seven sons of a priest get beat up by one guy. Never trust a preacher's kid in a fight. It's a cliche for a reason. <laughs> but the story spreads. And in verse 17, it says, When this became known to the, Jewish, the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. And so with the ridiculousness of that story aside, what is that supposed to tell us about God? What are we supposed to uh, glean from this story? For me, I think this is a lesson about the power that is actually available to us when we walk in faith, and also what happens to us when we try to fake it. Because these guys, our punk rock band, they were able to fake it for a while. I mean, it doesn't say that this was the first time that they ever tried to invoke Jesus' name. In fact, the text seems to imply that they had been doing this for some time. They had some success driving out demons in this fake way. And that bothers me a little bit, because you think that it shouldn't be real. But Jesus himself even seems to imply that this happens. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, Jesus says, On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Many of us in this room have been at this church thing for a while. We've put in countless hours doing a lot of work in the name of Jesus. And in my knowledge, I don't think any one of us has done anything as fantastic as driving out a demon. But even if we did, Jesus is warning us, if you try to use his name without making him your king, your fate is going to be worse than just getting beat up, naked, and embarrassed. No, at the end of your life, when you meet your creator, he will say, get away from me. I never knew you. And that is the scariest possible outcome. Because regardless of what opinion that you might currently hold of God, You don't want to know what eternity would be like without him. And so the question of today is, how do we know that our relationship with God is real? How do we know that we are right with God? How can we make sure that he will never look us in the eye and say, I never knew you? And thankfully, the scriptures don't make us have to guess. The book of James speaks to this. In chapter 2, verse 14, we read, What good is it, brothers? What good is it if someone says that he has faith but he does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and well-fed, without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so faith, and I defined faith as your demonstrated allegiance to God as your king. 
that will produce something inside of you that cannot be contained inside of you. Faith is so much more than what you say. And I see this all the time. A brother or sister will come to you and tell you where they have a need. And when we realize that we might be able to meet that need, but that would mean it's going to be inconvenient or costly, and so we cop out with the Christian get-out-of-jail-free card, I'm going to pray for you. And I'm not downplaying the importance of prayer, but a hungry man doesn't want your well-intentioned thoughts. A hungry man wants a sandwich. And you didn't see this in the early church. In the book of Acts, we read over and over again how the church was, made full, was just full of people who had means. It also had people who, who did not have those means. And those people came together in the name of Jesus. Those that had a lot of stuff sold it so that those who had nothing could have something. And the Holy Spirit took people that had a great chasm between them, placed there by the world, and it joined them back together in the name of Christ. And I could think of no better display of God's kingdom than a group of people who have absolutely nothing in common. But they get together as equals, equally broken sinners in need of a Savior. Because earthly possessions just don't matter when eternity is at stake. But just as faith is more than just saying the right things, it's also more about than just believing the right things. Back to James in chapter 2, starting in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Again, the demon in our story knew exactly who Jesus was. They knew exactly who these preacher kids were talking about. In fact, if you read the Gospels, it's every time Jesus comes on the scene, and if there's a demon there, the demon like, can't help it. I mean, the demon's like, guys, it's Son of God, Son of God's right here, guys, guys. And the de- Jesus is like, chill out, dude. Okay, that's fine. Demons often have better theology than we do. But a proper theology by itself is not enough. It's how you answer this question. Who is Jesus to you? Do you believe that he came to earth as a man, that he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross, that he was resurrected on the third day, and he ascended to the right hand of the Father to reign in glory yesterday, today, and forever? That's great. So do the demons. You have to, belief by itself is worthless. You have to answer this question. What does it mean to believe? What does belief look like? If you tell me you believe in Jesus, I will ask you, how has that belief changed you? So a thought exercise about belief in the Bible. It says that God told Noah, Noah, I want you to build a boat. And Noah said, what's a boat? Uh, it, we get two inches of rain a, here, a year here, man. And uh, so we believe that Noah believed God. But how do we know that? He built the boat. Yes, <laughs> he built the boat. And in this passage in James, it mentions Rahab the prostitute. She receives messengers from Israel who were warning her about how to signal the invading army, how to protect her home against uh, when Israel would come in and overtake the city. Did believing that the messengers had some good ideas save her? No, it was actually doing what they warned her to do. Belief that does not result in a measured change in our lives is worthless. And people have tried to make this a point of contradiction in the Bible. That in Romans chapter 3, Paul writes that salvation is based based on faith, not by works of the law. And in James, we read that we're justified by works, not by faith faith alone. So which one is right? They both are. There is no contradiction here. 
Philip Melanchthon, he sums it up nicely in this quote. He says, we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that remains alone. Faith that is not revealed in good works, in a lifestyle that is dedicated to helping the people who are lost and in need of a Savior. If your encounter with God does not leave you with a burning desire to be about what God's kingdom is about, then your faith is worthless, and you will never be invited to enjoy the riches of your master's kingdom. I'm a big uh, stand-up comedy fan, and uh, Louis C.K. is a comedian. He's, he's a very talented comedian. He's a terrible human being, but he has this quote, and I really love the honesty of it. He says, I have a lot of beliefs, and I live by none of them. That's just the way I am. They're just my beliefs. I like believing them. I like that part. They're my little believies. They make me feel good about who I am, so I hold on to them. But if they get in the way of the thing I actually want to do, and just forget it. And we think we're immune to this, but inauthentic faith is so prevalent. We like to approach God and ask, what do I have to do for you to love me? And I imagine it this way. If I went to Carrie every morning and just said, you know, what's the minimum amount that I have to do today just to make sure that you're going to kiss me goodnight? I would never dream of asking her that question without expecting to get punched in the face. (laughs) But we approach our discipleship with God this way. God, what are the 10 things that I need to do that I don't really want to do so that you won't be ticked and that way I could go back to living the horrible life I really want to live? And if you read about the early church in the book of Acts, you can't help be struck by the power of their testimony. When you see thousands being added to their number day after day, and we want a piece of that, we want to reclaim that power, but that doesn't start with a sermon. It doesn't start with a church program. It starts with people who have experienced the goodness of God, and that goodness creates a desire to display every moment of every day that God is king, and we are not. And I'm always tempted at this point to uh, try and end and say, now just go out there and try harder. You know, do better, and you're going to experience this true power. But that's not the point. We're not talking about a life strategy here, about somehow you're going to get more wins than you are losses. This isn't about saying the right things or doing the right things, or somehow we're going to twist God's arm into blessing us. Faith is not about doing just enough so that we get to enjoy heaven after we die. If you think the message of Christianity is about the afterlife, then you are sorely mistaken. Christianity is to be a billboard to the world that to show the lost and the hurting that there is a God in heaven who loves them, who notices them, who feels their pain. And his obedient disciples proclaim this message that in every trial we face, every choice we make, no matter what our enemy throws at us, we stand up in the trial and we say, my king, Jesus, he's enough for me. At the end of my life, as long as Jesus is there with me, I'm good. And the world will reward you if you act like a believer without really being one. There's a certain status, uh, status that's attached to being a good and upright Christian. Uh, and I see it in political ads where a candidate, uh, I, I saw this, she puts on her perfect flower dress, I'm sure, goes down to her ankles and uh, gets her children and her husband together in front of the computer because everything's Zoom church now, and, uh, and literally saying to the world, I'm a Christian, vote for me. And every single election year, I see one of the most grotesque displays of idolatry ever. And I see it in the American church. And I don't know if it happens in other countries, I know it happens here. 
that a political candidate for some office, I don't care if it's Senate or President or City Comptroller, but they show up to a church service on a Sunday morning and it turns into a political rally. Make sure the cameras catch me in the pew. You know, I'm, I'm going to be holding the hymn book. I'm probably going to sing terribly, but I might even drop a wad of cash in the collection plate, but make sure that they see me. I went on vacation a couple weeks ago, and one of the things I realized I was looking forward to most was that I would be, get, get to go a few days without seeing a political ad. But I shouldn't have to leave the country to get away from that nonsense. I should be able to look forward to a time every week where I come together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Where we come into these doors and we remind ourselves that this is the place above everything. We are the people who declare in every moment, God is king. He is not your prop. He is king. And the rest of you jokers are just playing pretend. Notice that every single time in the scriptures when the actual king, Jesus, when they tried to make him king before it was his time, he rejected it. In John chapter 6, they tried to make Jesus king by force, and he slips away to be alone. After the resurrection, in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples, they asked, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Time and again, Jesus rebukes those who would make him an earthly king. In fact, the only crown that Jesus actually let be put on his head was the one that they beat into his head before he went to the cross. Jesus wore his crown on the cross where he gave up his life to deal with the problem that is so large that only God could handle it. Our rebellion, our sin, and our brokenness. And because he endured that coronation, the one where he surrendered himself and died for us, because of what he did, he has been glorified. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and we can now be called children of God. I have to tell you, a God whose control can be determined by the results of an election is a God that is too small for me. Because this world needs a God who can reach through the noise, through the nonsense, through the storms of this life, through every single barrier that we ever construct. And he can grab our attention and say, I know you. I see you. I have always known you. And if you let me, starting right now, I will rewrite your story. We are all working towards a reward. And we have to ask what sort of reward we want. Do we want the rewards that this world has to offer? Do we want to submit ourselves to a system that judges your worth based solely on the amount of toys that you're able to accumulate before you die? Or do you want the reward that Jesus offers? Do you want the power that Jesus can give? Do you want to face the forces of the darkness so that when they see you coming, they say, I've heard of you. I know who has your back. I'm toast. I'm out. If you choose the world, no matter how well it goes for you, and it might go well for some period of time, but in the end, you're always going to end up like those dumb preacher kids, beat up, naked, bleeding, running for your life. Because that's what the world does. And I wish I could say that if you choose Jesus, that the beatings will stop, but I can't make that promise. Jesus is not some magic elixir for your life, that you're going to wake up the next day and everything's fine. No, you'll wake up tomorrow with the same problems that you have today, but the power will be different. You will have the power of the one that conquered the powers of this world, even death. So the call today is not about trying harder. It's about taking up your cross and dying to yourself. Which will it be? Let's choose life. Let's stand together and sing.
Spoke to the dark, fleshed out the world.